So in the long run, equities have earned something like 6% real return. But recently, recently the promise was much less. It was like 3.5%, 3.6% probably was the lowest that we got from, from our, our method. That has risen now to 4%. So there's, you know, the cheapening of assets has, has improved equities expected real return this year in the, in the past six months, uh, something. So, so it's, it's, and it, by the way, it's roughly half from yield and half from growth. You can think of it, think of it like that. So, um, so this is for the next five to 10 years. It's clearly below average, but it's at least a little better than for, at the trap. And now for government bonds, um, the long run real return used to be two, two to 3%, and then they went to negative levels for, for a long time. It was near minus, minus 1%, and now it's mildly positive. Latest was up 0.2% real, um, pretty much like the bond yield minus 2.8% inflation expectations for next decade. So, so when you put those together, you get something, um, something which is above 2% there, but uh, so, so we were clearly below 2%, which was at all-time lows. And compared to long-run average, 60-40 used to have 4-5% or expected real return, which has kept coming down for 40 years to somewhere clearly less than 2%. And now it has inched its way above 2%. So it's, it's, it's better than it was, the expected return, but it's still pretty disappointing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of XF Returns, Jack and I have the privilege of sitting down with Auntie Omen, Principal and Global Co-Head of Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR Capital Management to discuss his new book, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, Making the Most When Markets Offer the Least. We start with Auntie around the basics, how one could calculate expected returns and what drives them. We then get into some of the implications of lower expected returns, and Auntie shares some of his ideas on how investors might be able to help improve their returns with value stocks, trend following, and other investment strategies and why patience and staying humble are important qualities in successful long-term investing. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with AQR's Auntie Elman. Hi, Auntie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. As investors, we're always focused on, I think, the here and now. But we all have long-term goals that we're looking to achieve with our investments. And that's really where I think we're going to focus the conversation today. And we're going to use your new book, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns, as the theme to work off. So we'll talk about expected future returns, what they may look like, what the risks are, and how investors might be able to improve their long-term results. Before we get into that, which is gonna be a very important, and I think great discussion, I want to ask you a little bit more just about your background. Um, and I want to start with your first book, Expected Returns, which with some of the, the, the investors we respect the most, it's, it's a seminal book on investing that you wrote, I think maybe a little over a decade ago. So I want to just ask you to start, what led you to write that initial book? Um, and were you surprised by the, the response that you got from, from investors out there? Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Kind words. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm proud, proud of that. I'm glad I did it, even though it was, a, it was a huge effort. I think in the background, there was the academic culture, like professors Farmer and friends were instilling this idea that you should educate and share, try to improve the uh, investor experience. And I had found in my earlier jobs that I got some relative 
advantage or this is maybe my niche skill in some sense that like I had I had written a series on yield curve at Salomon Brothers and and I, I knew that I'm I'm I don't know relatively good at being a bridge between academics and practitioner world and and making complex things as simple as possible so all of all of this helped and um, and then then I had been a bond specialist but I had broadened during my Brevan Howard years to to look at trading strategies in many different asset classes and I was at the same time advising uh, Norway's sovereign wealth fund on on good investing in all of those places so I felt like I really have got pretty broad knowledge uh, on this on these types of things so so I I, um, I felt I was somewhat ready and uh, and it was still of course so very interesting there was a total silence first when the book came out three months of not hearing anything um, and then there was a nice article in the economist and 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 sort of then 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 i started to more regularly hear hear good things about it so so i i'd say that um i i wasn't eventually surprised because i had written the book uh, as something that I'd love myself to read, but I didn't know how many how many would share that. And I think there is somewhat a niche audience still, even now. I'm sure there are more buyers than uh, than full readers of the book, and that's 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 all fair. But but last, I say that I, I I'm still looking back and thinking that it was nice. I had small children at home, and I, they saw me going very passionately into a long project, and it turned out well. And it's it's a nice lesson, which you know it doesn't always happen like that. In this case, it did that. It was it was just a good positive lesson for them as well. And so so grateful. How long did it take you to write that? I mean, it must have been a massive undertaking. Yeah, three three years, and and you you know this this what's what's the old joke of Picasso who charges charges huge amount for this picture? Somebody complains that it just took took a moment from you, and and well, it took a. It took a lifetime or it took a Picasso at the moment. So, so not, not talking of any Picasso here, but of course there was lots of background, background knowledge there. But three years besides, besides sort of, I'd say 60% working at Brevan Howard at the same time, but 40% and all free time going to that. Did the book have any impact on how you uh, got to AQR and met Cliff? Or no? Yeah, well, so, so I, I, I met Cliff already when we were PhD students in Chicago 20 years earlier. and. And and that I think that that really gave me the I don't know the, in some way there was a possible ticket and and another founding partner John Lou was a, a same same year fellow student so 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 we were talking of we were talking about me joining AQR before I started the book if anything if anything after 2007 when we decided I don't join at that point I was thinking that well I have got one thing that they don't have and I have is I got more time. I, I, I can I can write the book. They might they might, but but they won't have the time. So so I th that that was something something. I think I think we would have written pretty similar contents. I mean we'd have different styles and so on. But our thinking is very similar. Anyway, so after the book came out, uh, or uh, as I was writing it, I did ask near the end Cliff to write the foreword. He wrote a lovely foreword with a really scary start. For from my perspective, he tells first that I'm insane, um, but I'm insane in a good way. Obsessed about markets, so so that was that 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 that, that was a scary read for a moment for me. Anyway, so so he wrote that, and I think I think the, that that whole thing reminded of how our thinking is aligned. And so then it wasn't too surprising that a few months later I got an offer from them that now it's time for you to sort of come to your natural home, and I did. So in your new book, 
investing amid low expected returns, you open with the serenity prayer. And I know on other podcasts you've talked about this, but we wanted to kind of open the discussion here with, with this. And let me just read what that prayer actually says. It says, God grant me the serenity to, to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think this kind of helps set the stage for our discussion. So can you kind of just talk about why you opened with this and sort of what this means? Sure. And first, I thank you for reading it, because when I have sometimes been asked to do it, I've been stumbling there and it's sort of embarrassing given that my book starts with that. So, so anyway, so I did, I, I did love the link. I got, I got this idea, I don't know, one and a half years ago that, 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 that basically most importantly, most investors have not had the serenity to accept the low expected returns. Either they are not recognizing them because realized returns have been pretty friendly, which I attribute to the windfall gains. Lower discount rates basically give you give you higher valuations, and 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 that that gives this feel good effect, which is which is particularly dangerous. Or even if they recognize it, um, they 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 then say um, market may offer low expected returns, but no thanks for me. I want to keep earning. My, my organizations need to keep earning what I'm used to, and then they have chosen to take more risk. So they haven't had the serenity, but they've had the courage to take more risk in in in, in different ways. Um, so I think I think that's that that was the key thing which I, I really liked as a as a uh, linkage. I quickly mentioned there was another logic that I do highlight there, um, which is that um, um, uh, serenity prayer uh, relates to the important challenge of of patience. So few investors have had the serenity to accept uh, a few few years of bad performance by any unconventional investment strategy, even though they have sort of signed off long term for them. And this is and, and statistically speaking, there could be justification and, and statistically speaking, it would seem likely that there can be just a few bad years for any any good strategy. And, and there may be just bad draws, unlucky, unlucky outcomes. Well, this is this is so common pattern. I mean, we all I think face face this and I'm just trying to, I don't know, move people to the to the direction of seeing patients even more as a virtue and trying to do something about this. And so I was sort of happy to use that that linkage as well in the book. And this, this year is kind of a good lesson in that because people who have stuck with these unconventional strategies are definitely getting rewarded. We're going to talk about the somewhat depressing uh, current state of expected returns. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about what goes into an expected return, because I think a lot of investors don't know the factors that determine an expected return. So I, I want to go through the major asset classes first and maybe if, see if you could talk about what the factors are that go into an expected return. So can you start with stocks? What goes into calculating an expected return for stocks? Stocks. Yeah. And maybe just, just to give the... It's it's nice to think that there is a broader framework for all investments, and and so one could think of with any investment, one could think about historical average returns or premium, and and sort of take from there. That's what you do if you think that these are constant. But if you think that these are forward-looking expected returns that vary over time, then you want to look at somehow yields and valuations. And so the most common framework uh, is that you think of every investment, and I will get to stocks on this one, that they are. Um, priced as expected future cash flows discounted by some common part and some some extra asset specific premia and and by the way the, then the book says that uh, that really the current story is that this um, 
the com that everything is expensive because that common part of every long-only assets discount rate is low, and that's that's at the heart of today's problem. But so so for stocks, that type of discounted cash flow uh, approach tells that expected stock returns would be a sum of um, yield, so dividend yield or payout yield, uh, real growth from from the payouts, and possibly expected changes in valuations. And we 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 put that last bit we put to often to zero. So some investors assume mean reverting valuations, and then that matters more than anything else, um, or or something some other assumption about changing valuations. But 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 the most common way I think people look at these forward-looking equity returns is some way of looking at yield and growth. And then we can debate a lot what 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 what's the yield and what's the growth and so on. But so so for us, um, I'd say that um, so for equities, um, if if. Well, anyway, I, I'll, I'll get to current numbers later, but the framework framework would be yield and growth, and then there's a, there's a lot of detail whether you include their buybacks and, 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 and how do you measure that growth and so on, how do you estimate that growth and so on. So, so do you not assume mean reversion when you do it? Uh, you know, because a lot of reasons a lot of people have very depressing ex expected returns right now is because they're assuming, you know, PEs are very high, they have to come down. Do you include that in your expected return? We, we haven't built that in, I mean, and I, I'm sort of grateful, you know, like already without that assumption, um, we, um, we predicted a decade ago 4% um, real return on U.S. equities, and, um, and actually they delivered 14% real, so much, much more. And that was without assuming. So it was just that low starting yield said 4%. And anybody expect, putting that mean reversion had zero or negative negative number there. And of course, so why did, you, why did US equities deliver 14%? It was rich assets getting richer. It wasn't mean reversion, it was sort of mean aversion. Uh, the Schiller PE ratio, CAPE for S&P 500 was already 20, which was above long run average um, 10 years ago. And then it doubled to 40 over a decade and that that gave huge windfall gains for us equities so so that's so we don't do that um there are arguments for doing that but it's it's the evidence is relatively weak we may return to that later but but so we we, we sort of we are happy that we already get the message of uh, that valuations and starting years matter from sort of the gradual effect from the carry and we don't compound it by saying that valuations need to mean revert over the forecasting horizon of the next five, seven, ten years, whatever you use. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how about bonds? So a lot of investors will just say, all right, to calculate my expected return for bonds, I just use the current yield, and that's a pretty good approximation. Do you think that's fair, or do you think there's more to it? I think that's that's fair, and it's a very good anchor. I would improve it a little bit by um, uh, assuming so-called roll-down effect. So this is, if you... if. Okay, this is getting geeky now for for some some of the audience. But basically, if you assumed if you if you assume that the yield curve stays unchanged, then if you buy your bond, then then the bond will age and roll down to a, a little shorter maturity, and that that in an upward sloping curve environment gives a small capital gain, roll down gain, and 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 we add that to the yield. Uh, so so that's 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 a refinement. But but otherwise otherwise um, I think yield is a yield is a very nice starting point and a very good long run anchor like if you if you look at the relationship of starting yields versus next 10 years returns that tends to be quite good with equities there's a positive relation but it's it's more um, cloud uh, wider cloud scatter cloud there so so not 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 nearly as tight correlation 
How about commodities? Um, is, is the expected return of commodities a function of inflation, or, or how do you how do you think about calculating that? Yeah. So so commodities. Uh, don't, well, one thing is that they don't they don't always have some starting starting. Uh, sorry, they don't have the um, expected cash flows in an in an as as clear way. So so that's that's something. But also when we have when we have tried to look at whether whether things like any yield measures, which could be in commodity futures case, some roll down, or or we look at long run mean reversion or something, we just don't find that anything predicts reliably, statistically reliably, commodity index returns for the next um, five plus years. So then we say that okay, if we cannot sort of tactically, conditionally forecast these th things, we can go back to this question of what's the long run average. And the long run average premium on commodity futures portfolio is perhaps surprisingly it's a positive something like three three percent or a little more so so we would we would add that type of thing to whatever we think you, you can expect from cash and so the cash will include something on inflation so so like roughly speaking we'd say that cash you could expect near, maybe near zero uh, real return so so add current not current inflation because you know we don't we don't expect eight percent. Nobody expects eight percent inflation for the for the next decade. But we will look at what's 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 a reasonable expectation for the next decade on inflation, and uh, and um, we would add something like that then uh, to the commodities to uh, commodities three percent premium to get the um, nominal expected return. One of the really interesting things you talked about in the book is this idea of how important it is to use a basket of commodities instead of individual commodities and the effect of volatility drag in that. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's been one of the more popular stories, but it's, it's weird sort of because it's, it's, it definitely is a geeky story. So there's this, there's this weird result that, that when you look at individual commodities or commodity futures, you find that some of them have had positive long-run returns over cash. Some of them have had negative. Some of them have been just uh, matching cash when you think of the long-run long compound return. But then when you create a portfolio of them, diversified portfolio of commodity futures has given something positive, 3-4% per year. And, and how did that happen? It is related to, like you said, the volatility drag or variance drain. And it's the idea that single commodities have got lots of volatility, 30% or 40% type of volatilities. And, and that means that they have got lots of volatility drag, which means that their compound returns are much, low, much lower than their uh, simple arithmetic uh, mean returns. And, and then commodities have got, besides high volatility, they've got another feature, which is helpful. They are very lowly correlated with each other. So you can reduce this problem by diversifying across them. And when you do that, you can basically um, get a portfolio with much less volatility and therefore um, less volatility drag, and therefore more positive uh, long-run returns. Um, you touched on this a little bit already, but I want to ask you about sort of the future or the outlook for the 60-40 portfolio in terms of expected returns. Um, you know, most people are saying right now, even with this decline this year, you know, equities look pretty bad from expected return standpoint. Bonds, even with a little bit higher yields, don't look very good either. I mean, how do you look at the framework for sort of expected returns for stocks and bonds going forward here? Yeah, so let, let me just use use numbers that we use in our capital market assumptions at, at AQR, which, which are pretty much like I said, yield and growth. And then, then for bonds, it's largely yield with some with some roll down effect. So so just for equities, and let's, let's use US equities and, and bonds as to, to, to make this simple. So 
in the long run, equities have earned something like 6% real return. But recently, recently the promise was much less. It was like 3.5%, 3.6% probably was the lowest that we got from, from our, our method. That has risen now to 4%. So there's, you know, the cheapening of assets has, has improved equities expected real return this year in the, in the past six months, uh, something. So, so it's, it's added right away, it's roughly half from yield and half from growth. You can think of it, think of it like that. So, um, so this is for the next five to 10 years. It's clearly below average, but it's at least a little better than for, at the trap. And now for government bonds, um, the long run real return used to be two, two to 3%, and then they went to negative levels for, for a long time. It was near minus, minus 1%, and now it's mildly positive. Latest was up 0.2% real, um, pretty much like the bond yield minus 2.8% inflation expectations for next decade. So, so when you put those together, you get something, um, something which is above 2% there, but uh, so, so we were clearly below 2%, which was at all time lows. And compared to long run average, 640 used to have four or 5% expected real return, which just kept coming down for 40 years to somewhere clearly less than 2%. And now it has inched its way above 2%. So it's, it's, it's better than it was the expected return, but it's still pretty disappointing. And again, I'm, I'm quoting numbers now for the five to 10 year forecast. It's a different story. If we, and we, I, we, we can talk a little bit about the tactical views, which become more of discretionary opinion taking. I want to ask you about the best way to use expected returns, because one of the things we see investors do sometimes is they'll say, all right, low there's low expected returns on stocks, so I'm just going to get out of stocks. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, that doesn't seem like the greatest use of, of expected returns. So I'm wondering, what do you think the best ways for investors to use expected returns in their portfolio process are? Yeah, well, so first, first, really, like, you have to think what, what kind of input you use. And typically, the kind of things I was just talking about, they were for five to 10 year horizon. So they are, they are not meant to be for short term market time. If I, if I were thinking of short term expected returns, I would want to have some other inputs thinking about macro environment, momentum and so on. And, and it would be very difficult, but at least I would use more information. But when, then when you, when you try to have a view for let's say next decade, um, then those very short term forces don't matter much. They sort of wash out. And so therefore I think you are, you are pretty much down to, using things like yields and possibly possibly valuations and mean reversion but but i think starting yields again are pretty good and so first we say market timing with such things is very difficult but even for 10-year forecast you can get things quite badly wrong and yet i'm saying they are as good as it gets so so they are to your question they are useful for planning purposes but for tactical timing you really have to be very humble about them and even even for thinking about next next few years I think, I mean, I am, and I, 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 I've always had some wish to try to do, I don't know, market timing. I've written my, I don't know, dissertations on those topics. And I, every decade I become more humble about, about that quest. And yet I was still, you know, if you look at the end of my, my book, I was sort of still, still saying that um, let's, let's, let's be cautious about timing, but stars seem to be aligning that 2022 could be a, bad environment for risky assets. So. Yeah, I've been the same way. The more I've attempted to use market timing in my life, the more I've been convinced that it, it can't be done. I want to ask you about overall valuations. Um, you know, you mentioned you don't use mean reversion in your process, but 
when we look at equity valuations over time, you sort of have two numbers. You have this long-term number in terms of what the valuation has been, and then you've got this last 30 years number in terms of what it's been. And this last 30 years number is a lot higher than the long-run number. And I'm wondering just when you think about equity valuations, do you think there's a case that sort of equity valuations should be above the long-term average and this 30-year average is probably a better number? Yeah, and that's that's really related to the question. If If one says that, okay, Let's use mean reversion. Do we use 30 year mean or 100, 100 plus year mean? Gives you very different messages. So, so you're, you're quite, quite, quite right there. And part, partly, by the way, for those reasons, I've just decided, okay, so let's, let's not do that. We are getting directionally the same message when we say that, that start, you know, starting valuations are high, therefore starting yields are low. And, and so, so that's, that's one logic. But, but I sympathize with what you are saying that it could be that there are there are some structural changes. I think the most obvious structural change would be, which is the theme of this book, that, that there's been some lower bond yields, lower real bond yields in particular, due to some savings glut type of arguments, investors saving, saving sort of ever more bidding up asset prices. Uh, and that influences not just bonds, but all, all kinds of assets because they are competing with bonds and they have got, they have got that bond yield as part of their discount rate. So I think that is, to the extent that these structural forces are persistent, I think that's, that, that, that explains and that will anchor also in the future um, asset, asset yields lower, asset valuations higher, and, and, and prevent some mean reversion to some much earlier uh, yields. And then there are some other things, you know, like especially in equities, there was the story, and that, I think that's fair, uh, Jeremy Siegel and others, that lower trading costs, greater market access, and better diversification possi possibilities, all of these can justify lower required uh, returns now than 50, some 50, 100 years ago. And that applies, I think, to equities, credits, illiquids, and so on. So, so, so those, those arguments would say that, yeah, it's, it's probably not right to assume mean reversion to the 50 to 100 year average levels. It's, it's gotten a little bit better this year, but when, when I look at the expected return for stocks and bonds combined, I think they're probably the lowest, you know, at least coming into this year, they were the lowest they've ever been in my career. And I'm just wondering, have you, did you look at it historically? And you know, are there other examples of the combination of stocks and bonds having both simultaneous low expected returns like this? No, no, there isn't. So this is, I mean, it is, so, so I was, I, 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 it's, 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 it's so, Contrast to 2000 first, so so you know that then equities were expensive, but but you had those four percent tips yields, or then interestingly, like if you think of 1980, both were on the cheap side, so that that experience we have had, but both being expensive at the same time, there's there's no good precedent on that, and that's of course scary, and it's more scary when you think that okay, it's not only stocks and bonds, you can go to real estate and various illiquid investments, and so it's pretty much all long only investments. Uh, are expensive. And, and again, my story there is that it, it's primarily related to this common part of the discount rate. And, and, and just so that I don't sound too negative, I think there are some pockets in some asset classes. So, you know, there are some cheaper value stocks. There are emerging markets seem to be cheaper. And, and again, US is particularly expensive. And then there's this one interesting detail, and we'll, we'll get to long short strategies later. But, but if, if the common story here is that everything is expensive because, because of those low real yields. Well, that type of level effect washes out in long short strategies. So it's, it's, bit, it's, it's both in the long leg and in the short leg and mechanistically it's not there in, in the long short. There could be other reasons why, why rising yields, for example, is bad news for, for those strategies. But, but again, so I, th I think one reason why this year some long short strategies have done well is that they, don't, they didn't face the headwinds from low expected returns or 
the realization of rising yields. They were sort of zero duration assets, which was sort of as good as it gets in these tough times that we faced. Uh, we had Wes Gray on our podcast, and I know you're familiar with him because I first uh, became familiar with you when you presented at his Democratized Quant uh, conference back when it was in person a few years ago. And uh, one of the things he said when we interviewed him is that he would not use commodities or bonds in his portfolio without applying trend following to them um, because they can both have sort of have these long trends. And I'm wondering, what do you think about that? What do you think about the idea of using trend on those two and, and, and sort of his comments on that? Yeah, well, first, I, I think I, I could use them together. I mean, again, in, let's say in something like risk parity, it ain't, it ain't so bad. Uh, when 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 they are offsetting each other, so 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 the criticism that when you have got only one of them, I think is misleading. Putting them together strategically is decent. But but I I you know I I, I love with the basic premise there because uh, trend following is pretty as as close as it gets to my I don't know favorite uh, and I, I think underrated uh, way of investing because it combines positive sharp ratios and some good performance in equity equity tail tail events and uh, and it's by the way it's not only in in uh, bonds and commodities you can you can add their equities and currencies and and so the historical evidence is basically that, that in the long run trend following has worked in all of this in addition when you think of uh, their performance in equity bear markets it it has again trend following has tended to work especially in protracted bear markets where where the idea is that you switch on switch from risk on to risk off and then you ride the bear market and you can do that in every asset class you can you can you, you know you can do it not just by shorting equities but 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 by appropriate duration positioning favoring gold uh, favoring anti anti carry strategies in currencies and so on so 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 all of all of this helps so i think trend following is great it it well and that's that's now such a positive story that let me say then 2010 showed that it's not always so wonderful. So, so, so this long-run performance didn't really replicate in that decade, um, and now, now this year we are having sort of the best year since 2008, and just when when markets are suffering. So, so that's that's great. But so, so what's going on there? I think it is that that trend following can be sometimes curtailed by central banks by keeping things things uh, sort of trends trends too too modest, and and now they have been unable to do that because they they have got their hands full with the inflation problem and that allows the uh, that allows longer trends that allows these strategies to perform much better yeah we're big fans of trend following you know the biggest issue we've seen in implementing them is the behavioral issue which is that investors don't like to go to the cocktail party and you know have significant underperformance when the market's going up relative to their friends so you know it can just be a tough thing to stick with yeah yeah and that's that's always with unconventional strategies and uh, yeah but but yeah I, I do love strategies that can help when, when you most need them. And, and so, so that's typically equity market drawdowns and doesn't get much better than trend. I want to ask you about how these low expected returns might materialize. You talked in the book about how they could they can materialize very quickly or it could be sort of a long drawn out process. And I'm wondering, is there any way for us as investors to maybe figure out how that might happen? Or is that just something that's going to be random? It's again, timing is very difficult. And I, I you know, like I, I I wrote there and I put put in conclusions this 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 point that I I sort of like uh, discretionarily expected slow slow pain scenario so that basically these valuations will remain high and will clip those tiny coupons 
and dividends and whatever rents and whatever they, whatever it is. But 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 2021, I started to lean towards this uh, uh, basically fast pain scenario, which which did materialize, and and it was very much as as expected that it was it was related to the inflation creating pressure for central banks to consistently tighten policies, which hadn't been done in a, in a long time. And uh, and now now that we are halfway there, it's it's a, of course a harder call. Um, I, I as a as a you know speculative view, I would I would say I expect some more of this more more policy tightening needs here, um, and and therefore more fast pay. But I also don't think it's going to get too bad because because the structural forces sort of savings plot and so on that keep real yields low, they will probably be with us and they will anchor real yields lower. Which you know there's there's good and bad news on that one. That would mean that, that uh, we don't get as big sell-off now, but it also means that this, this fast pain doesn't solve the slow pain problem. We are, we are going to still be stuck with this low expected return world, uh, if not as extreme as it was last year. One of the things we've been trying to do is, is use, to use a pre-mortem um, in the way we look at markets. And so take the idea that, well, what if we, we put ourselves in the future and 10 years from now, we're completely wrong about what we've been saying, you know, what would have occurred in the world between now and then to make that so? And so we've been thinking that, you know, we've been talking about low expected returns as well. And, you know, we've been thinking about sort of how we would look at it in that framework. So I'm wondering if, if 10 years from now, expected returns continue to be above average, you know, for stocks and bonds. I mean, what would have happened in the world if we look back to now and say, you know, what happened to make that so? Yeah, and remember that framework I was talking earlier about that that yield plus growth and changing valuations. So I think changing valuations would be well, changing valuations certainly in the last decade was the was the thing that that you know there was no mean reversion. There was there was basically already mildly rich equities got wildly rich by uh, by by Schiller Cape doubling from twenty to forty. So, um, but that was that was clearly storing problems for the future. So, if that's going to be the pre-mortem message that 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 yeah, we'll get another good decade because assets get back to their richer levels. I think we are again just storing problems for the future, which is yeah. So, so that that could happen. I think the more interesting issue for risky assets, especially for equities, then is this idea that G the growth could be higher. So, so um, so if that G increases, then 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 risky assets can clearly do better. I think um, it's important then to remember that we have had 200 years of really good technological advances and so on. And, and now betting that, that things are going to get sort of twice as good as that is, is extremely aggressive. And, and, the, and the, among the people who are really studying these issues, you can hear convincing arguments on both directions, why, why things uh, will slow down versus why, why there might be faster faster things with the you know internet better information across the world and and so on there's there's nice stories but overall i'm happy to stick with basically the same same kind of number that has worked for the last 100 years or so which which was a good environment for real growth uh, just a side note here um, we we've been using uh, a financial planning package software for some of our clients and you know part of what that software does is it looks at the asset mix that the clients are in, and then it basically projects returns going forward. So, just this discussion got me thinking that you know those underlying assumptions, you know, may need to really be adjusted, customized for you know what the professional, in our case, us, we feel about future growth, because that obviously is going to have a big effect on portfolio values um, going forward for the people that we advise, and also just 
<laughs> the thousands and thousands of financial advisors across the country that are using you know similar types of tools. I think this kind of concept is important for investors and professionals to obviously be thinking very, very carefully about. It is, and let let me just throw there another thing. Why why it is challenging? It's a, like it just is a fact that last ten years or last thirty years have seen faster earnings growth than last hundred years. So instead of two percent, one and a half, two percent, it's been more like three, four percent than uh, over 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 this this period. And is that is that something that we should just extrapolate and think that the world has changed in the, in that particular way, or is that related to this idea that basically more of that GDP pie has been has been uh, earned by the corporate sector, and there could be some mean reversion and pendulum switch on that one, and so on. is that good or bad news? You can really debate. That's again something why why I decided that I'm, I'm sort of happy to stick with the long run average, but it is I think important to think about things risks to both directions. I wanted to ask you about, I guess, three things that are maybe a little bit counterintuitive here. One is GDP growth, um, two is the illiquidity premium, and then three is the size premium. So starting with GDP, which you just mentioned, um, a lot of, I think, investors would think, you know, when the economy is growing very rapidly, that would translate into good stock returns. And I think maybe that happens, you can be somewhat confident that's going to happen coming out of a bear market. but. I don't think that's the case where strong GDP growth always translates into strong equity returns, correct? There's, there's a lot of research on that one and it's, it's weirdly, it's, it's pretty consistent in finding very weak relation. And I think the, the, the best relations will be with the sort of growth surprises or, or basically equity markets leading growth and so so. But, but, but even, even result, when you look at one country in the long run or you look at across countries, the correlations are really low on these things. And my favorite poster boy on that is China that, you know, like it had 30 years of super strong GDP growth and equity returns were actually very disappointing on that. And again, it's, it's, it's basically, it's just, it's just telling what we find uh, in many other cases. And why that has happened, I think like, uh, I wish I had one answer, but I think it's multiple. I, I, I referred to one that the corporate share of the share of corporations on GDP can vary over time and that, that can matter quite a bit. And then there are issues like uh, local versus global, listed, unlisted, different sector compositions between GDP and let's say S&P 500 and, and some weird, I, I don't really want to go there, but d dilution effects that, that, that issuance, some, something where corporate sector is, or China was growing largely through basically more issuance as opposed to high returns. China is one of the biggest markets now, but it didn't get there by having great returns. It had, it, 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 it had great GDP growth and it grew into a big market, but this sort of obvious thing in the middle that, oh, that, that's because it had high equity returns is not there. It was dilution. One of the um, trends that we've seen in the last 10 years is this flood of money into private equity and less liquid type assets, private companies. And in the book, you weren't really that optimistic about the illiquidity premium. Um, what what are your thoughts just in general on the evidence supporting the illiquidity premium, whether it exists or not? It's more, clearly it's more modest than most people think like there. I think I would say that when people are asked what, 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 what premium they are most confident on, equity premium comes first, but I think illiquidity premium would come second and, 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 and the evidence is, is much weaker on that one. And, and, uh, and so, so, for example, if you look at um, the longest decent comparison, we have real estate, direct real estate in US versus REITs 
the, the, the sign is wrong. Actually, the, the more liquid reads outperformed, and then you can make some adjustments for sector compositions, uh, leverage beta or whatever, and you can get it to near zero, but you don't get a positive illiquidity premium there. Also with private equity, when, when one studies the history, it, it really hasn't been such a great outperformer versus public equity. And in particular now, I think the last 15 years, it's been much more modest. Um, and it's, it, I, I attribute it partly to inflows and still high fees, which is sort of makes it makes it I think hard for private equity to outperform collectively. Uh, but I think there's still a common perception that they are wonderful and, and therefore money keeps going. And I think the trouble will be will be ahead. And now, really directly, why why would this be? Why don't investors get get an illiquidity premium that just seems so so uh, I don't know natural to expect? It is because those private assets have got have got the illiquidity feature that that you don't easily get your money for many years, or you it's pretty costly to get that money back earlier. Um, but that's offset by another feature, which is this lack of mark to market, what I call the smoothing service. And investors really like that feature, and collectively they may accept lower returns. Basically, they may offset that required illiquidity premium by by the amount how much they love the love the. Uh, uh, smoothing service and Cliff has even written in a couple of places, my my boss Cliff has this, that, um, that that there might even be an illiquidity discount as opposed to a premium. The data is just too fuzzy to tell. Yeah, it's sort of I think asking the why behind why that premium might not exist is important. And uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is the small cap premium. So in my mind, when you're investing in smaller companies. Um, that might have more bankruptcy risk or maybe they're more negatively impacted by higher interest rates or when a recession comes around, they get hit harder. You know, because they're riskier, you should receive a premium in those types of companies. But I, I don't, and you, you can sort of tell me here, but the, I don't think the size premium has existed for like 30 or 35 years or something like that. So, I mean, what's, what's your opinion on the size premium? So my colleagues have had a couple, I, I haven't my, myself written, but I certainly read carefully when they were writing those papers and, and they find very little empirically. Also the recent case, but even longer, like the, the, the story pretty much is that uh, size premium has been modest beyond the sort of, the, there's something in the, you know, they are higher beta stocks, so they, they get something, but, but sort of additional illiquidity premium or whatever it is, or the, the ideas you said, it's, it's been very modest. There are some pockets, pockets of, uh, small small quality companies might be okay but but in general the evidence is nowhere near what as good what we find for things like value momentum carry defensive so it just doesn't get to my list of of the long run long run premium because the data isn't there to support it and that's by the way that is if we think that small cap premium is is largely an illiquidity premium that's an if but if we do then it's consistent with what we just found in in the private assets illiquidity premia are overrated um, you, you deal with four major alternative style premium in the book, value, momentum, carry, and defensive. But before we get into them individually, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, it would seem like in a in a world of low expected returns, those premium might be a lot more important than they normally are in terms of sources of return. I mean, do you, do you think that's accurate? It is. And, and I, it's funny, like five, six years ago, I was telling, telling this story, which I alluded to earlier, that, that these, these long short strategies, they are not mechanically as, as vulnerable to low expected returns or towards rising yields. So again, they are sort of zero duration investments. And, and, and people really didn't care too much about it at that point because, because it wasn't 
topical. And now, now that this year, the, it's not so much the low expected return part, but it's the rising yield part, being zero duration investments among, among everything else having sort of positive sort of risk, I don't know, real yield duration, sensitivity to rising real yield. So, so that, that makes them, I think, partly stand out. I, I've always loved them as very good diversifiers, um, that they, they can really be additional return sources besides asset class premia. But now I think there's also this tactical thing that when everything else faces headwinds, they don't face the mechanical headwinds. Though again, Fed tightening and so on can, can create some troubles for them and funding spreads could widen and so on. So I don't want to overstate the case. One of the misconceptions you see with these premiums a lot of the times is, you know, investors will buy, say, the long-only value factor fund, and they'll think they're accessing the value premium, or at least the complete value premium. Can you talk about the advantages of accessing this in a long-short fashion versus doing it that way? If you do long-only investment on any style, you are primarily getting your market risk, and you are getting a sliver of the, of the style you are after. Just any, any, any risk con contribution analysis would tell that it's, it's mainly the beta effect. So... If, and then the, so, so, so that's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is that if you are after superior diversification, this type of long only investments will keep all your different investments very highly correlated. Whereas if you do long short strategies, you can uh, basically bring some other things to the table that, that are truly uncorrelated and you can get huge portfolio volatility reduction on that. The bad news is then that to make these things matter as much as equities is you need to use decent amount of leverage. So, so the lever or managers need to use that. You have to accept that managers do that. So, so this, is a, this, this means that the unconventionality and leverage uh, considerations mean that there are meaningful limits to how much investors want to do those long short strategies. But again, I think you know, getting to that direction is something that I am pushing, pushing them, but I'm also in the new book, I am emphasizing, don't go that far that you, that you can't stay with it if there are a few bad years. I want to go through each premium individually and, and see if you could maybe define what it is and then also maybe talk about sort of what the outlook is for it going forward, given where we are now. Um, so first, I want to start with value. Yeah, so value is basically buying cheap investments and, and what's cheap, it's basically looking at market price compared to some fundamental anchor. So with equities, it can be book to price earnings, to price cash flow sales, etc. Lots of possible fundamental anchors. And we love to combine them. We don't, we don't like picking just one of them. Let's, let's, let's take lots of those. Um, and so that would be uh, value for stocks or even country allocation in equities. And then you have to think when you move to other asset classes, you have to think of similar concepts. Like for bonds, it might be real yields. Um, commodities is actually the tough one because there isn't a good uh, fundamental anchor for all of those commodities. So we tend to use multi-year mean reversion and so on. Currencies, purchasing power parity is a classic one. And so, so, so that's, and then thinking of the outlook, well, let's just focus on the stock selection. So, so you know, that, that had really difficult times 2018, 2020. Since then has done very nicely, but we see forward-looking measures of, of how attractive value stocks are versus growth stocks are still very high despite despite the strong performance of value in the last year or so. And, uh, and so we see we see very nice runway and I'd say lots of parallels to what we saw 20 years ago after the dot-com bubble in this situation. And, and, uh, and so we think that is a tactically still exceptional opportunity there. One of the things AQR is known for is accessing the value premium in an industry neutral way. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the advantages of doing that. Sure, sure. Um, two, two things, better comparability and better breadth. So, so if you are comparing um, 
some some oil company with with a car company or a bank the comparability is just sort of pretty pitiful and so so we think that it, it's so much more makes sense to look at look at uh, comparisons within within an industry or otherwise constructed peer group and so 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 that that will improve the quality of, of the trading but the other feature is that you get more breadth because if you are if you are letting your portfolio be dominated by the industry risks then then you have got really maybe i don't know 10 industries you are mainly playing on as opposed to hundreds of different uh, stock trades so 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 the better breadth is a second reason and empiric support this in the long run it ha you, you get better sharp ratios or information ratios doing this and can, can you define momentum? But also I'm wondering with momentum, you know, you talked about with value how because spreads are wide, it might give us an idea that the value premium might be greater in the future. Is there anything like that with momentum where you can say whether the premium should be above or below average in the future? So, well, first, so momentum is basically favoring recent winners versus recent losers. And it can be just based on own price. Uh, and there are some fancier strategies where you where you make it uh, related to something else and let me just also say that so like value and value momentum here is often a cross-sectional strategy or relative strategy you you overweight some things underweight something but try to be market neutral and i say trend following is basically a cousin of momentum but it's a directional cousin it allows you to take directional positions when when all all risky assets go up trend followers says let's buy all of them momentum manager says i buy the one ones that went up the most but i buy I, I have to sell some some things that went up only a little so that I, I stay market neutral. Anyway, so so favoring recent winners is is the is the approach, and ideally then doing uh, long short, uh, underweighting, selling selling the losers. Um, and now to to your second question, it's really difficult to come up with some uh, some timing measures on that. I think there, there's something on on the market volatility levels that could be good and I do think that the story I just told for trend following with central banks basically containing that volatility that can be but I think the most important things in the literature has has been trying to avoid for this stock selection momentum trying to avoid so-called momentum crashes there are very few of them in history but they are important and like 2009 spring when the junkie junkie uh, banks and some other dogs of the GFC rallied fast uh, momentum was on the on the short side on the wrong side of that um, that that was very painful so strategies that can somehow adjust for that uh, can be helpful but that's not really a timing feature it's it's really designing the strategy so that you are less vulnerable there timing momentum or trend is incredibly difficult yeah we, we looked at using you know sort of valuations to time momentum and saying all right well if high momentum stocks are you know if the spreads are wide or something can you do something there but you know one of the challenges of that i think is momentum changes so fast that you know momentum can even value stocks and suddenly it's just gone it's in something else so i mean that seems like one of the challenges of trying to use something like that with momentum exactly because value corrections happen happen so gradually your momentum portfolio has turned over by the time by the time you should expect it to happen yeah can you talk about carry um that's one that most in investors i don't think understand as well can you talk about what that is and maybe what the outlook is there yeah and it's it's a super naive strategy it's, it's really favoring high yielders versus low yielders and you can do it in pretty much everywhere and and, and again you can refine it a little what 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 it precisely means with the, with the yield uh like it, it can include some roll down effects and so on but really it's it's, it's naively almost saying that okay look at look at within any asset class look at what's 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 yielding high and what's yielding low and and and, and go with the high yielding and it's it sounds scary because there are certainly charlatans out there that that could take advantage of that but but it also has been a successful strategy in in the long run in many different asset classes so currency carry 
I would say the most famous are currency carry and credit carry. So favoring high yielding currencies um, versus typically yen or Swiss franc, and then uh, favoring, let's say, corporate bonds and high yield corporate bonds or emerging markets compared to sort of lower yielding, lower yielding bonds, those types of things. Are. But then you can also favor across bond markets. You could, you could look at basically currency hedge positions with steep yield curves, uh, uh, favoring countries with steep yield curves versus those with flat yield curves. And then in equities, it just can be just dividend yields or buyout, so broader yields, which include buyouts and so on. So, so all of these strategies are carry type of strategies have worked historically, um, but they also, some of them have got this vulnerability that they, they, do, they have got sort of equity beta or equity tail beta, they do badly in, 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 uh, in uh, big bear markets. Um, but it's interesting that that's only really for things like credit carry and currency carry. There are many other carry strategies which don't have that, that beta feature. So, uh, so I think carry is an interesting part of this collection. And all of this, and I do just say, all of these have got this, this incredibly strong empirical support that in the long run they have worked pretty much in any country and and um, most most sectors that you study and uh, and ve very robust to different specifications and 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 uh, persistent over time looking at you can't be too per you can't require too much persistence they will get their bad years and even bad five and sometimes ten years which people only typically forgive to equities. But when you look at sort of 20, 30 year histories, it's almost, they are almost always positive. And, and that already may make people roll their eyes too long horizon for me, thank you. Yeah, that's true of most of the premiums, right? I mean, most of the premiums are gonna have these long periods where, where they don't work. And and isn't, isn't momentum the most consistent? It sort of surprised me, but I think momentum is sort of the most consistent historically, isn't that true? It's um, two, two caveats to that one. One is, um, again, when you look at all of these before trading costs, momentum has got higher trading costs than others. So, so that would take away some of that consistency advantage. So I think that's, and then, then especially if you look at stock selection momentum, then those couple of momentum crashes in history would, would argue against. So, so I, I don't, I would buy that more for trend following than stock selection momentum. Um, um, and, and again, caveating that it, with high turnover strategies, rel relatively high turnover strategies, you really have to think about the net net effects more. And it's very difficult to get good data on that. And the final premium you deal with in the book is the defensive premium. Can you define that? Sure. It's favoring bore, well, the boring investments uh, compared to more speculative ones. And let's just make it, make it a bit more tangible. It could be statistically boring things could be basically low volatility, low beta, type of investments compared to high beta, high volatility. And then you can also look at quality signals, sort of looking at fundamentally boring companies based on things like profitability, earning stability, earnings quality, and so on, credit ratings. And, um, and, and in both cases, the evidence is that the boring investments have at least higher risk-adjusted returns, but often even higher raw returns. And very pervasive evidence within stock markets in many countries, many all pretty much all industries and so on. In the long run, this phenomenon is there, and and to some extent works in other asset classes as well. That the boring stuff certainly has highest risk-adjusted returns. Um, and why that would be that this actually I didn't talk much about this. Why I just say because with defensive, it's sort of as this has got the best why arguments. I think it's a twin explanations of leverage aversion and lottery preferences. So the more speculative stocks, which according to this one, you should be underweighting, maybe selling short, the most speculative 
stocks in, uh, in most, most markets, um, they give you embedded leverage and they, uh, they act like lottery tickets. And both of those features are things that investors like. And so leverage averse investors and people, people who, who like uh, uh, lotteries create this effect that, that, that you don't get risk rewarded in, in a beta sense when you look at within equity markets. And do you think there's a way to determine whether the defensive premium is more or less attractive at any given time? I know a few years ago, you know, sort of these types of stocks got very expensive and people were saying maybe they were less attractive. But do you think you can use valuation or anything else to determine whether these stocks are more or less attractive at any given time? It's somewhere between, you know, with, with value, you can use it decently. With momentum, not at all, which you were pretty much referring to. With defensive, it's halfway there. You can, you can use it a little, but it really has got pretty lousy track record. And I had some really geeky papers six, seven years ago on, on, on showing how these defensive stocks, they have got lots of reasons why. Again, one reason is what we are just talking about, the turnover. There is enough turnover in that strategy that that can, that can ruin the value, value signal. But it also is that the fundamental, fundamentals can change. And then these, if, to the extent that these strategies are not beta neutral, the wedge between the long and short side betas makes these value spreads, um, I don't know, go haywire. So we, we, just, we just found that it wasn't historically helpful in the long run. And, and in 2010s, you had this wonderful decade for defensive strategy. And like you said, most of the time it looked expensive. It was better to ignore it. It really, it, it, it's, it's been, it's, yeah, I would, I, would, I would not use much the value spread. And I don't otherwise have got really good timing signals for that. Uh, it is one of those strategies that I would stick with because I think it is, uh, it has got this good long run performance characteristics and some help in, in bad times. That's a pretty good combo. Don't need to time it. That makes sense. As we wrap up here, we have a standard closing question. We ask all our guests and, and the question is based on your experience in the markets and your research, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? Be humble and be patient. That's cheating already. There are some two things there. And, 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 you know, like, so, so that points to diversification, strategic thinking, and, 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 uh, trying to be more systematic, humble and patient. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for joining us. We've learned so much for over, from your work over the years and from your books. And, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. If investors want to learn more about you or about your research, where can they go? Um, our website, aqr.com, has got lots of good stuff in it, but, but there is even a page then uh, forward slash serenity uh, related to my book with lots of, lots of uh, extra material. Like you can see for free, um, intro and cliffs forward, which is always more fun than my text. And, uh, and I've actually added some deleted scenes, things that didn't get to the final version. So I think like, I, I've tried to just add, add a bit, bit of interest there. Well, thank you again for joining us. This has been great and we really appreciate you doing it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.